It is that time now once again For getting lumped up with my friends It's rock a mic And Rob that you should know And you'll find them here on the rock show Today we got a special show. We got another guy named Roger Keith Bader. Barrett. Barrett, also known as um, Skip Barrett. And right. heard you on Pink Floyd. This is episode 127 of The Rock Show. Yeah, Sid Barrett is, uh, uh, you know, one of the more interesting stories in rock and roll. Also one of the more tragic. Uh, very short career. Um played on really and, and wrote the entire first Pink Floyd album uh, called The Pipers at the Gates of Dawn. Uh, had two very influential solo albums that practically couldn't get made at the time. It was so difficult. Uh, he's a perfect example of what happens when you take too much acid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Want to talk about that? That guy, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. Uh, very sad story about what happened to him, but uh, today, even today, his influence is felt. Uh, uh, a lot of modern acts like Robin Hitchcock uh, is, is very influenced by Melvis Costello, uh, Chrissy Hine, a lot of people. Anybody basically doing a singer-songwriter kind of thing with a little twist on it is, is influenced by Sid Barrett. Uh, and Pink Floyd themselves really, for many years, even after he was out of the band, was kind of haunted by him, okay? And uh, tracks like Shine On, You Crazy Diamond, and Wish You Were Here, and uh, some others are really dedicated to Sid. His, his, the specter of, of him as the lead singer lasted after he was out of the band, which is a very interesting kind of phenomenon that happened. But uh, all right, so um, he was born January 6, 1946, and like you said, his name was Roger Keith Barrett. And he was born in the Cambridge, Cambridgeshire section of England. His, yep. father, his father was named Arthur Max Barrett. And he was a prominent pathologist. Uh, what's a pathologist, Rob? Is that someone who studies diseases, I think? I think, yeah. I think he's a sick doctor, right? Something it's like that. Sickness some, doctor? Yeah, like if you have a special disease, I think that's what that is. But uh, his mother's name was Winifred Flack, and he was the fourth of five children. Now, Barrett, yeah, you know what that is? It's the study of cause and effect of diseases or injuries. Yeah, yeah. So he was very prominent in that way. Uh, he was also a kind of patron of the arts. Uh, he was an amateur artist of his own. I believe he was into painting and drawing. And he kind of passed that down to, uh, to Roger. Okay, his son, Roger, as a young child, Roger was interested in painting and, and he also was interested in writing stories. But when he was 10, he got his first instrument. It was a ukulele. Uh, when he was 11, he got a banjo. And by the time he was 14, he worked his way up to a Hofner acoustic guitar. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, music at the time, if you think about, about 1960. And uh, it was becoming way more of a focus than anything else in his life. Okay, by the time he was 15, he got his first electric guitar and even built his own amplifier when he got it. Okay. Mike, let me ask you, you think he was like a child prodigy of music? Um, I mean, obviously, he was, he was definitely gifted. I don't know if you could say a prodigy. Because you but, know what? Think about it. If he wasn't getting that high, he probably wouldn't even be able to do the lyrics and the music he did. Oh, that's a whole other thing. I mean, did, did, the, did the LSD influence his, his songwriting? I, I would think so. I think okay. it did, man. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's like he burnt out so quick. But before we get into all that, uh, you know, he, he really, by the time he was 15, he was very interested in blues music, like most British men at that time, at that age, uh, playing playing music, and uh, he ended up using the Sid name as a nickname. But there's a couple of stories how he got that 
how we got that name. Now, there was an old local jazz bassist, okay, that was named Sid. And some say he took the name from that guy and added the Y to make it a little bit different. There's another story that he thought it sounded like a working class name. And he, you know, he can't kind of came from a fairly wealthy background, his father being a, a successful doctor. Um, he definitely would be not considered working class. So I think there might have been some like attempt there to seem more like an average working class guy and taking a name like Sid. All right. Now, most of his life, he would use the name Roger and Sid kind of interchangeably. Uh, to his family, he was always Roger. But to his friends and, and people in the music business, he was, he was Sid Barrett. Now, uh, along with his art and music, Sid was also a Boy Scout. And he was in the 7th Cambridge Troop. And at one point, he was even a scout leader. Um, in 1957, he attended the Cambridge High School for Boys. And it was there that he met future Pink Floyd bass player Roger Waters. Now, sadly, Sid's father would pass away from cancer in December of 1961. Uh, Sid was a month shy of his 16th birthday. And at that, by that point, his older brothers and sisters had left home. Uh, and his mother kind of uh, became very sensitive to his needs. Uh, she saw his interest in music. He was playing in a band, and she encouraged that band to, uh, to start playing in the front room of the house. Okay, so she was, she was happy to have him over. She would make sandwiches for them and cook for them and give them stuff. And, you know, he, it, was just a, it was a good situation all around for them. Yeah, because she was probably missing her family because they all left. So yeah, and her husband she died. She got this whole group. Right, right. So... Um, she also started taking in boarders at that point to, to try to like keep up with the bills. So that was kind of like renting the place out. And then Sid's band was in this front room and they could practice and play and have friends over in there. Now he was in a band at the time called Jeff Mott and the Mottos. Now Barrett and Waters were friends, but they weren't playing together at this point. Waters used to hang out and watch Barrett play guitar in this band. Uh, there was an actual guy named Jeff Mott in the band. Okay, he was the leader. Um, Waters, what he was doing was, you know, on a friendly level, he was hanging out, but he was also uh, getting gigs for them. And one, one gig that he got was for something called the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. It was a group called the CND. And there was a benefit for them in March of 1962. And Jeff Mott and the rest of the band we're, we're going to play that gig. And they did. But it was right after that gig that, that the band broke up. Jeff Mott went to leave to join another band, and that was the end of it. Yeah, the Boston Crabs. Right, right. He joined the Boston Crabs, which was a... I'm trying to think they might have been a skiffle band, but I'm not, I'm not positive. Now, in September 62, Sid entered the uh, Cambridgeshire College of Arts and Technology. And it was here that he met David Gilmore, who would be a future member of Pink Floyd, of course. And when the Beatles came along in 1962 and 63, Sid was like entirely blown away by them, by most, like most people would. And he began to play Beatles songs at parties and other gatherings. He also became a big Stones fan in 63 and got to see them live with his girlfriend at the Village Hall in Cambridgeshire. So he saw them very early, which was a big influence. Um, in 63, he started writing his own songs. Uh, up until that point, he, was, he had some songs, but mostly was doing covers. Uh, some of these songs would appear later on on his, on his uh, solo albums. A track called Evervescing Elephant was written at this time. Now, by 63, he hadn't done Acid yet. So I don't know if a, a title like that, Evervescing Elephant, came out of, you know, came out of uh, doing an Acid trip. Sounds, yeah, like a song you, sounds like a song you'd write on LSD. Yeah, you know? it's pretty funny, man. Yeah, yeah. But he was playing a lot of acoustic gigs at this point with David Gilmore, uh, just the two of them. And uh, Gilmore had a band called Joker's Wild that he was with for a while before he would join up with Pink Floyd. But 
occasionally at this point in 63, he would do these little like one-off gigs with Sid, just playing acoustic. Um, he, Sid was also playing bass in a band called Those Without in mid-1963 mid as well. Um, he definitely moved around a lot for such a short career. He was moving around, right, from places to places and bands and bands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 64, he was playing in a band called the Hollerin' Blues. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of these bands were short-lived. Uh, it wasn't that he just left. The band sometimes fell apart, you know, and, and he'd move on to something else. Now, he had a girlfriend at the time uh, named Libby Gosden. And Sid went to see Bob Dylan with her in 1964. And it was a very uh, life-changing moment for him. Uh, he ended up writing a song called Bob Dylan Blues, okay, which was a lost track that was supposed to be on the second solo album in 1970 called Barrett. Uh, but it actually wouldn't appear until the early 2000s. In the early wow. 2000s, there was like a resurgence in interest in Sid Barrett. Uh, he does pass away uh, in the middle, middle part of that decade. And uh, you know, a lot of stuff came out after he died, stuff that was in the vaults and never released and part of Lost Sessions and things like that. And uh, that was one of the tracks that was like a masterpiece that for some reason was never released. But Barrett also at that time in 64 was enrolled in the Camberwell College for the Arts to study painting. And it's important to realize that as much of a musician he was, he was also a painter and he loved painting. And he did that pretty much his whole life. Uh, when he did give up music, that's what he ended up doing for basically the last half of his life was, was a lot of painting. painting. That, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Now, in 63... Roger Waters had met uh, future Pink Floyd member Nick Mason. And the two played with uh, a guy named Keith Noble and Clive Metcalf and uh, Sh uh, a woman named Sheila Noble. Um, and also Richard Wright, who would end up being in Pink Floyd in a band called Stigma Six. And they would go through some several name changes. Uh, one was called the Megadeths. Yeah. And one was called, yeah. I thought that was interesting. I never knew they had a name called the Megadeths. Kind of sad. It's the thrash metal band. I wonder if they knew that, you know? Um, the Screaming Abdabs, okay, was another one. They uh, had a lot of fucking weird names. Spectrum 5. And they settled in on one called the T-Set. And sometimes they spelled it T-E-A, and sometimes they just spelled the letter T, set. And that's when Sid Barrett joined up in the band, okay? Uh Basically, Roger Waters brought him in. Uh, they all became friends. David Gilmore was not involved yet at this point, but uh, it, it definitely was the seeds of Pink Floyd right there. Now, shortly after his arrival in the band, they ended up playing a gig with a band that had the same name. Okay, so you can't have two bands with the same name on the same gig. So they quickly, at the spur of the moment, came up with a name. And it was the Pink Floyd sound. And basically the way Sid came up with it just on the cuff was that he took two names of two old blues guys that were on some records that he had at home. One, one guy was called Pink Anderson and another guy was called Floyd Council. And he just took the name, the Pink, name. Pink Floyd and then added the word sound. Uh, and that was in late 1965 that happened. Um, eventually, of course, they would drop the word sound and just be the Pink Floyd or Pink Floyd. Okay. Yeah, Barrett, much better Pink Floyd than Pink Floyd sounds, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, like you said, they went through some changes with the names, but finally settled in on Pink Floyd. Now, Barrett began writing songs for the band right away. And a friend of Richard Wright's gave the band some free studio time to record. So they were in the studio pretty much right away at that early, that early point. Uh, they were doing demos and things like that. And it was during the summer of 65, and this is a notable mention here, that Sid began experimenting with LSD. Now, he was with friends, uh, Ian Moore and Storm Thurgerson, uh, for his first acid trip. Storm is a guy that ended up doing a lot of the album covers for Pink Floyd. Uh, he was involved with the band for many years 
that was his first time doing acid, and it was with those two friends. Now, he liked it so much, he did another acid trip not too long after. Oh, man. And as a result, the band got involved with um, what was called the Sant Met Religion. And it's a kind of like, if you're familiar with the Sikh religion, okay, it's almost like a, almost like a Buddhist sort of, they, they wear turbans uh, religion. Uh, the Sikhs are, it's like kind of a, an offshoot of the Sikhs. And yeah. they have an actual guru and stuff like that. And Barrett and Thorgerson one day went to a London hotel to meet the girl. And Thorgerson was allowed to join the Sant Met religion. And uh, but for some reason, Barrett was not allowed. And, I wonder uh, why. Well, they felt he was too young. And he was. He was only about 19 at that point. OK, I guess they felt he was too young. And Thorgerson was a couple of years older than him. Uh, interestingly enough, Roger Waters stayed with that religion for a long time as well. Uh, I believe he was part of that religion going into the 70s, if I remember right. Um, this, this rejection by the, uh, by the Sikh people um, really hit Barrett hard. Uh, he really wanted to be part of this, and they rejected him. And Thorgerson always said that it, you know, it was something that affected Sid very deeply. Uh, one of the songs that... that that was written around this time was a song called Bike, which would be on the first album, the classic Sid Barrett composition. Uh, but, you know, what was happening at this point is, is he was taking acid almost on a daily basis. Okay. And, you know, <laughs> you, you, scr you scramble your brain. Okay. You know, but by 60... You heard the thing if you take, um, suppose if you take Three hits of acid, you one. You're technically clinically insane. That's what they always said. Uh, I know guys that did plenty more than that. I know, yeah. but there's some people that can do it. But then I know people that they got the fucking um, they had the um, the one the relapse that they get like a trip every so often. They be somewhere and they just start tripping. Yeah, they get like a flashback. Yeah, yep. fuck. That's, that's happened to a lot of people. I know. I never messed with uh i was always afraid i'd scramble my brain so i stayed away from it but uh did a lot of other stupid shit but not that but by 66 pink floyd uh who at that point had officially shortened their name from the pink floyd sound had begun carving out their own kind of rock and roll all right which which drew a lot from old blues but but improvised free jazz as well and uh richard wright was playing keyboards uh, which was something that was different, okay, at the time. Uh, most of the musical ideas that they had were really coming from Sid Barrett, all right? He oh. was really the creative genius at this point. Uh, they'll all admit that. Everybody from Roger Waters, Nick Mason, all these guys will admit that, you know, Sid was the, 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 creative, the, impetus, the, the creative driving force. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, one thing he did through most of his days, besides doing acid, he read a lot. And uh, he would read from Grimm's fairy tales, Lord of the Rings, uh, even the I Ching, okay, was something he was very influenced by. And you could hear it in the music. The lyrics were very out there. God, almost fairy tale-ish in some, some songs. Okay, definitely a Lord of the Rings influence with some of the titles. Uh, even science fiction. Uh, there's a song called Interstellar Overdrive, okay, which is on the first album that is classic. Uh, I think Pink Floyd continued doing that song for many, many years, even after Barrett was out of the band. Um, Floyd became the house band for a new club called UFO. It's actually spelled UFO, like UFO, but it's pronounced UFO, okay? UFO. UFO. So it was a new club called UFO in London, and it quickly became a, a home for Pink Floyd. They became the house band, but also other British psychedelic bands at the time were all playing at the UFO. And they also did several gigs at the Roundhouse, which was kind of a rival club. And uh, they really became quickly the very most like popular band in the London underground scene at that time, 66 or so. And by the end of that year, 
Pink Floyd had um, a management team of Andrew King and Peter Jenner that was really behind them and, and pushing what they were doing. They began a company called Black Hill Enterprises, uh, and this was meant to manage their, uh, their finances. And they also acquired Barrett's roommate, Peter Wynn Wilson, as road manager and wow. also as a lighting technician. Uh, he was the one that did a lot of the early lighting shows for Pink Floyd. They were always known for light shows. Okay? Yeah. And these early light shows were psychedelic. Uh, no other way to describe it. I mean, if you could pick this, there's clips of them if you'd like to check them out on YouTube. Uh, very influential, obviously influenced by acid and <laughs> doing a lot of shit like that. But um, King and, and Jenner also was able to book them. Okay, and they recorded more demos at this time, and they also got them playing gigs outside of London. So they were they were getting out there, and in early '67, they were featured in a film uh, called uh, "London Underground" or "Tonight Let's All Make Love in London." Okay, that was another name for it. And later on, it was actually on video under the title "London '66 through '67." The film featured Pink Floyd doing a 16-minute version of Interstellar Overdrive and another track called Nick's Boogie. British producer Joe Boyd tried to get Pink Floyd signed to Polydor Records. They were very hot. And soon a bidding war actually developed between Polydor, who wanted them, and EMI. And Boyd produce a recording session for them at Sound Techniques in Chelsea, which was a studio that they were familiar with. Uh, yeah. But Pink Floyd ended up signing with EMI. Uh, one thing that they did that was very unusual at the time, uh, their, their original contract uh, allowed them unlimited studio time at EMI Studios, but it was in return for a smaller royalty percentage. So they were experiment in the studio for as long as they wanted to put this album out. But in return, they took less money in the royalties off that album. Well, I, don't know if that, that's, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I guess Mike, them, I, think, I think that's a great deal. Because think about it. You could go on limited tape, unlimited tribe. Probably the studio time was way worse. More than yeah, I mean, they also worked on tracks that ended up being on the second album. Okay, yeah. so they, they were able to experiment a lot. So probably it was a good deal. It's what they wanted. So they, yeah. they, they, were, they were happy with that. I'm not sure how much less they got compared to, to regular people in other contracts, but it definitely was a lesser uh, percentage points on that album than other people would have gotten. But think about it. You know that it got unlimited uh, studio time. Studio time is the most important. Especially a band like Pink Floyd. Yeah. You know, I mean, who I definitely wanted to experiment. So, I mean, let's say if they took like 20% of royalty and they only got 80, it's still a good deal. I agree. I agree. And, and they were definitely going to be a band that was going to be doing a lot of studio work. So, yeah. you know, it, it was a good deal. Now, <clears throat> um, Joe Boyd, when he produced for them uh, prior to them getting signed to EMI, he had done uh, what ended up being the single, the first single called Arnold Lane. They tried to re-record that. With, the EM, with EMI in the studios, and uh, it just didn't work out. So they ended up releasing that as a non-album track single as their first single. So by the time that single came out, they hit the studio to record an album, and the album was ready to be released. They already had a hit single in Arnold Lane. Now, wow. Yeah, now that came out in March of 67 as a single, and it's a, you know, it's an interesting song. Uh, it's really about a guy that likes to wear women's clothes. <laughs> okay. If you listen to the words and he steals clothes off a clothing line and off a clothesline and, you know, and the song got banned. Okay. But it still ended up being top 20. Yeah. Okay. Couldn't get played on the radio on certain, uh, you know, Radio 1 or whatever, BBC Radio 1. But... It still did very well, and it brought a lot of attention to the band. Now, through between February and July of 67, while Arnold Lane was going up the charts, 
Pink Floyd was recording at Abbey Road Studios. All right. And they got produced by uh, Norman Smith, who was the Beatles sound engineer. So Joe Boyd was kind of left out of that. He had hoped to get involved with Pink Floyd at that point, but he only did that single Arnold Lane and that was it. <clears throat> but by the time the, the, the album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, came out in August, they were being known for that song, Arnold Lane. So it was a nice follow-up to have this album come out. Arnold Lane was a song that wasn't on it. Yeah. So that was good. Uh, the, the follow-up single was another non-album track called See Emily Play. Yeah. And how, that, and how come they did that? Off the... Not off the album, uh, not a non-album track? Yeah. That was common at the time. When, when, when albums first were becoming important, they would have singles come out. Stones did this. Even the Beatles did it. Yeah. Um, right, so. It was a marketing thing. It would get you to buy both. Yeah, get to it by both. You bought that single, and then oh, and then you bought the other one because oh, this is song is not on the album. That's by the album. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that that's been done through the whole history of, of music, pretty much. Um, now, the album itself got to number six, "The Pipers at the Gates of Dawn," and the third single, another non-album track called "Apples and Oranges," did okay too, and it's only one of a handful of Pink Floyd songs that's actually, you could call a love song. I mean, Pink Floyd didn't write love songs. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not many. And not many. And this is one of them that kind of is like that. Now, through all of the early Pink Floyd years, Sid would be experiencing acid trips or daily sometimes for days on end. And by late 67 into 68, he became increasingly erratic in his behavior. Now, some have speculated that he actually got schizophrenic or did the acid do it to him or was he possibly already that? Nobody really knows. OK, but in this time, late 67, he had always been a very joyful, friendly guy, kind of extroverted, had a lot of friends, a lot of girlfriends, uh, but he became increasingly withdrawn. Yeah, and he didn't want to be around society. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want to be around band members. And, and he, he, he would be very moody. He would have mood swings. And uh, you never knew if he was going to fly off the handle or be calm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times uh, he would just stare straight into space. Because he was hallucinating the motherfucker. Guess that. Probably. That's it. <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. Just too much of it. All right. So they had toured... Uh, in early 68, they had toured the United States. And there was one show that they did in Los Angeles that when he got up and talked to the crowd, he said, oh, it's great to be here in Las Vegas. Okay, he, he didn't even know where he was. And many times he, he would like strum the guitar on one chord for the whole show. And sometimes he didn't play at all. Okay. Now, often he, he, he just had a dead-eyed stare at people and it used to freak people out okay yeah. like you know he would kind of be looking through them like you say it could have been the acid all right but sometimes it was like in the middle of a conversation he'd be talking to somebody and just not be there anymore very scary you know especially if it's somebody you care about you know yeah but so, you know what it was that was a little bit he could have been because uh he could be a um he could have all kind of phobia, and it's also the acid. The acid got a lot to do with that, man. If you're yeah. popping your head every day, that you're not supposed to be doing acid like that. No, no, it's it's meant to do, I guess, once in a while, but but not on a daily basis. I mean, the, I can't imagine how you could even function like that because you know you trip for a good 10, 12 hours. You know, you're kind of useless, really, he, right? He would have <laughs> been great for a man that stare at goats. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe some CIA stuff in there. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, Maybe you never know. Yeah, CIA. <laughs> yeah, you never know. There was a show that they were doing at the Fillmore in San Francisco, and uh, Sid actually started detuning his guitar in the middle of the show, pulling it apart. Okay, and the band, the, the audience loved it. They thought it was great. Okay, and it was right in the middle of. Uh, of them doing Interstellar Overdrive, which is a long song anyway. 
So they, they, you know, the audience had no idea that it was just like Sid freaking out. But the band was becoming very concerned about this kind of behavior. So there were two TV performances on that American tour. One was a show called the Pat Boone Show here in America. Yeah. And of course, they also did American Bandstand. And uh, two very Pat, popular shows back in the days. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a, a big deal for them to be on it. Yeah. And both times when Pat Boone interviewed Barrett after they played and, and Dick Clark on American Bandstand, he basically said nothing. He was drifting off and, and not, you know, looking catatonic. And <laughs> or with the Dick Clark interview, he just was kind of rude, very short answers. And uh, it's very strange if you watch it. It's just, you know, one show in late 67 also, he took a, now the story has been disputed. He actually, one version of the story is he took a tube of Brill cream, which is what guys used to put in their hair, and, uh, and one pill of Mandrax, which was a type of tranquilizer that people were doing in those days and put it in his hair, and he crushed the, the pill up and put it in his hair. And when he got on stage with the hot lights that they used to do with the light shows and everything, the Brill Cream all melted down his face with the, with the tranquilizer in it, and he looked like a melting candle. Okay. Now, Nick Mason, okay, of Pink Floyd, disputes the, the Mandrax part of that story because he said Sid never would have wasted a pill on some kind of, you know, some kind of stunt like that. He would, they, they liked their Mandrax too much. Now, during a UK tour with Jimi Hendrix in November of 67, guitarist David O. List, who was in a band called The Nice that was on tour with them, substituted for Barrett on a few occasions when he was really just too out of it to perform or sometimes didn't show up for the show. Okay. Now, it was around Christmas of 67 that other members of Pink Floyd asked Barrett's school friend, David Gilmore, to join up, okay, as kind of a second guitarist and to cover for Barrett when he was really not available or, or just not, in, not, not with it to play, okay? So for a handful of shows, Sid Barrett and Gilmore were playing at the same time, okay? And, and Sid would often wander around the stage looking like he didn't know where he was, uh, Gilmore would be singing the songs that Sid would normally sing and play the lead guitar while this yeah. happened. Okay. But none of them had the heart to, to throw him out of the band officially. Okay. But on January 26th, 1968, the band was, was really tired of, of a lot of Sid's antics that were going on. And uh, they were driving to a gig at Southampton university in England. And they just decided not to pick him up. Okay. And they went to the gig and they left Sid home. And, you know, Gilmore did the show with them. And they were trying to figure out what to do. Okay. Uh, one thing they thought of doing was what the Beach Boys did with Brian Wilson. Yeah. And, and you know, Brian Wilson had a similar issue going on around the same time where he was on a lot of and really unable to perform. And the Beach Boys just left him at home as a non-touring member of the band, <clears throat> right? I mean, and, and he would still write. And he, they were thinking that this could work with Barrett because Barrett wrote all the songs that they were doing, okay? But once they started doing it, it really became impractical uh, for them to do this. And uh, Gilmore just ended up taking Barrett's spot and yep. became a full-time member of the band. Now, according to Roger Waters, Sid came to what would be his last practice session with a new song. And he was calling it, Have You Got It Yet? That was the name of the song. And they liked the song, and it seemed like a very simple song to learn when, when Sid presented it in the, in the studio. <clears throat> but soon the band found it impossible to learn because after a couple hours, they eventually realized that what Barrett was doing was he was changing the arrangement on it. And then they would play it again with these subtle changes. And, and, and Barrett would sing, have you got it yet? Okay. 
And yeah. soon the band realized that they would never get it because he was constantly changing it. And he, they, they were the victims of an elaborate practical joke. Okay, because he'd be changing the song. He'd be like, have you got it yet? And they, they, couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't play it. Okay. And, and, and Waters went on record later and said, you know, it was a real act of a mad genius. Okay, to do something like that to them in the studio. Okay. <laughs> so the he second. With them. Dude, I'm not in the band. I'm not here. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess he knew he was on his way out and. Uh, it was something that affected him deeply, and he just started fucking with them. He had that kind of offbeat sense of humor anyway, but I guess combined with his, his clinical insanity by that point, who knows? So the second Pink Floyd album, which was called The Saucer Full of Secrets, was released in June of 68, and uh, Barrett's input was minimal. Uh, his song called Jug Band, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jug Band Blues, yeah, uh, yeah. it was really the only one that they used on the album of his. Uh, he does play a slide guitar on the song Remember the Day and guitar on uh, a track called Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. Now, often he would sit in on these sessions, uh, but he would hang out in the reception area of the studio waiting to be asked in, and they, they didn't ask him in. So he would be hanging around but not be doing anything. But... On April 6, 1968, the group officially announced that Barrett was out of the band. They made an official announcement to the press and to the record label. And it was also that day that the contract with Black Hill Enterprises ended. So considering Barrett to still really be the creative genius of the band, Black Hill kept Sid Barrett on. Okay? And was in charge of the royalties and stuff like that for Sid. Okay. But they ended up Pink Floyd left them okay, as a, as a management company. Now Sid dropped out of the public eye for a, a few months after this. And Peter Jenner uh, left Floyd's management as well to work with Barrett on a solo career. And Jenner would admit to, this kind of being a mistake. He seriously underestimated the difficulty of working with Sid. And after a very difficult recording period, his sessions in, in, in June and July of 68 actually ended up being a little more productive. For a few months, they just couldn't get them off the ground. He would not sing. He would not play. He would just sit there. And finally, by June and July of 68, they got some tracks down and some, some, you know, early versions of songs that could be used. Some of those tracks were pretty good. It wasn't bad songs. No. Uh, well, we're going to get into how, how the album really came together, but uh, this solo album. But originally it was like almost impossible. Now, by July uh, and August of 68, of though, he was starting to really kind of unravel. Uh, his girlfriend broke up with him. Uh, Lindsay Corner was her name. Uh, she had been with him during, you know, the end of his time with Pink Floyd. But this was ending up to be too much. Uh, he could be violent sometimes, supposedly. Okay. They would break up and he would take his Mini Cooper for a drive all around England by himself. And he ended up in a psychiatric care center in Cambridge for a short time. At the, around this time in summer of 68. <clears throat> but after he recovered, he ended up renting an apartment on Egerton Gardens, which is in the South Kensington section of London. Uh, he was roommates with a postmodern artist named Dougie Fields. And his next door neighbor was actually David Gilmore. Okay, yeah. he was living, living like right, right almost next door to him. Uh, Barrett contacted EMI at that point about getting the recording tracks, uh, the recordings back on track, I should say. And they passed him on to a guy named Malcolm Jones, who had become the head of EMI's new progressive rock label called Harvest Records. And Jenner, at this point, had really dropped out of working with Sid anymore. Okay, and But there were these tracks that were recorded, and Malcolm Jones wanted to make use of them and, and, and have some more and put an album together. Now, 
the new project was going to be called the Madcap Laughs. Yeah. And Jones produced the early sessions, okay, starting in April of 69 at EMI Studios. Uh, but Barrett brought in some friends to help hum- to help along, uh, including Humble Pie's drummer Jerry Shirley yeah. and Joker's Wild's drummer Willie Wilson, okay? Uh, remember, Joker, Joker's Wild was David Gilmore's old band, yeah. all right? Now, the band called Soft Machine also helped with some overdubs with guitars and bass, and Roger Waters and David Gilmore themselves assisted in some of the production of this album. Um, Mike, we must say, he had good guys in the band helping him out. Absolutely. We've talked about Jerry Shirley and some of yeah. these other guys in the past, very talented musicians. I mean, he was well-respected in the musical community still, okay? Uh, a likable guy. He was always a likable guy, but something happened to him, okay? But they were still interested in working with him, all right? Now, I think Roger Waters and, and David Gilmore, probably all of Pink Floyd, felt a little obligated to Sid, okay? You know, they might have felt a little guilty, okay, for not having him in the band anymore. So Waters and Gilmore helped with the production. But when it was done... Malcolm Jones, who was really in charge of the whole of the whole production, felt that the Waters and Gilmore tracks were kind of like too rushed and, and, and not good enough. But they did put them out on the album. There was a track called Octopus that was produced by Sid Barrett and David Gilmore. And that was released as a single. And that tracks to this day is a cult classic. Uh, the whole album really is. The Madcap Laughs is like a cult classic album. Uh, there was a track called Terrapin, uh, Dark Globe, Here I Go. I mean, these, these, these tracks were all Sid Barrett at top form. Okay, really. Uh, different, different than what he was doing with Floyd. Uh, much more stripped down. Okay, yeah. but, but interesting songwriting, interesting arrangements. Uh, just him playing with a guitar and, and, and simple drums and, and stuff like that. Now, immediately they would begin starting the second album, okay? Uh, it would start in February of 1970, okay? A Madcap was released in January. So they immediately started working on a second album, which you know, looking back on it, maybe was, was too much at once, but this was what they had decided to do. Um, and the way they recorded it was kind of sporadically uh, between February and July of that year. Once again, David Gilmore would be brought in. Uh, he would be yep. brought in to produce the album entirely yep. uh, and play bass on the album. Okay. Now, Richard Wright of Pink Floyd would play keyboards, and Jerry Shirley was brought in again on drums. And this album was going to be simply titled Barrett. And it was recorded at the time and in the same studios as Pink Floyd's fifth album was being recorded. That album was called Adam Hart Mother. And Barrett often would be hanging out with them, kind of spying on them, not really in the studio. He'd be watching them uh, record this, this album. Okay, so I think what was happening was Gilmore and the, and the other guys in Floyd that were involved with this were doing their album. And when they had time to stop and take breaks, they worked on Sid's album. Okay, so that's why it was recorded over such a long period of time, like five months. Okay, now Richard Wright from Pink Floyd has said that the recording sessions of the Barrett album were very difficult because Sid just would not sing. Okay, you couldn't get him to do anything, and despite that, uh, the album is still pure Barrett genius. Okay, I mean. I, I actually like I like this album in some ways better than the first one. Uh, tracks like Baby Lemonade uh, and Dominoes are classic. Okay, And that album will come out eventually in November of 1970. If you listen to a track like Baby Lemonade, the only, thing that, the only guy that was doing anything like what he was doing at that point might have been Mark Bolden okay, with, uh, with uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. But even that was was a little different. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, despite these numerous recording sessions, 
Sid wasn't playing outside the studio at all, really, very little. He appeared on uh, DJ John Peel's Top Gear show. Yep. And he played five songs. Only one of them actually has been released. Uh, three of them would be re-recorded for the Barrett album. This was after the Madcap Laughs album. Yeah. He, did, he did this. And there was a track that he did for John Peel called Two of a Kind, which never really appeared anywhere. Um, they say it may have been written by Richard Wright, and it was like a one-off kind of thing. But Barrett was with David Gilmore and Jerry Shirley for these Peel sessions. Okay, so that was the band that he had. Uh, and this band would also back him for his one and only live gig during this period. Uh, it was at the Olympia Exhibition Hall on June 6, 1970. Uh, he yep. performed Terrapin, a song called Gigolo Ant, uh, Effer- Effervescing Elephant was brought back, and, of course, Octopus, oh. which was the single. Yeah. All right. And the show was, was unfortunately plagued by a lot of technical sound problems. And it, the, the, the problems didn't get resolved until the last song. So it didn't go too well. But after Octopus was done, that was the last track, uh, Barrett just put down his guitar and walked quietly off the stage, not saying to anybody. Uh, he did do a gig on BBC One for the last time on February 16th, 1971, playing three tracks off the, the, the newly released Barrett album. Uh, he took a year-long break at this point from music, uh, and he did an extensive interview at this time with uh, Mick Rock, and it was for Rolling Stone, and that came out in December of 71. Uh, in early 72, he was playing with former Pink Fairies drummer Twink and bassist Jack Monk in a band called Stars. Uh, this band would, would be very short-lived, uh, they ended up opening at one gig for the MC5 uh, in England, also for a progressive rock band. And after the MC5 gig, which was a disaster, supposedly, uh, the critics really panned the, the, whole, the whole band. Uh, he quit. Sid just quit. And he became involved more with poetry and some jazz performances very briefly a few months later. Uh, but basically withdrew from music altogether. Uh, he was still collecting royalties from Pink Floyd, but ended up settling into the Chelsea Cloisters apartments in London and lived there all alone. Uh, in August of 74, Peter Jenner was in touch with Sid, and he persuaded him to go into the studio to record a third LP, but there was just a couple of days of sessions. They didn't go well. They, the, the rhythm tracks were put down, some guitar solos, but nothing solid. And in the middle of these sessions, after a couple of days, Barry just walked away from the music industry for good. Yeah. That was the end of it. Uh, he would soon sell off his rights to his solo records and began just being a recluse. Okay? Uh, his legend was still popular. Uh, he it got even as he became more of a recluse, people were wondering, you know, what, what what happened to him? You know, where is he? And there would be sightings of him in the neighborhood. And some people knew where he lived. He really didn't keep in touch with anybody. Uh, Mick Rock was somebody that he kept in touch with. Um, when punk started in 76, um, the Damned and the Sex Pistols were actually they admitted they were fans. And uh, they wanted to work with him, like possibly produce their records for them. And could you imagine if the first Sex Pistols album was produced by Sid Barrett? That would have been. I, I don't know. And I can't. I can't even picture what that would have sounded like. It was um, probably fantastic. I would hope. I would hope. I mean, but they, the Damned also wanted uh, Sid to do their second album which uh, actually bombed for them. So it might have saved it had he, had he done it. Uh, yeah. But they, they, no one could get in touch with him, or if they did, he wasn't interested. So by 1978, Sid was, was really running out of money. Okay, the royalties were drying up, and he had sold off the rights to the two solo albums. So he left his Chelsea apartment, and the guy actually walked 50 miles 
back to Cambridge to live with his mother. Okay, he had to walk 50 miles. This is a guy who was a fucking rock star. Yeah. And between 78 and his death in 2006, Sid's only contact with the outside world was from his sister, Rosemary. Uh, She would visit him. And an occasional conversation with Mick Rock uh, that he stayed friends with. For 30 years, Sid concentrated really just on his paintings. And over time, his physical health would begin to decline. And he developed diabetes. Uh, He reverted back to using his birth name, Roger, all the time. He wasn't really even known by the name Sid anymore. Uh, Sadly, he would pass away, uh, reclusive and alone, on July 7th, 2006, at the age of 60 from pancreatic cancer. Uh, His sister, Rosemary, had him cremated shortly after that. When he died, uh, when news was was coming out, David Gilmore actually had a a response to it. And he said, the quote is, um, we are very sad to say that Roger Keith Barrett, Sid, has passed away. Do find the time to play some of Sid's songs and to remember him as the madcap genius who made us all smile with his wonderfully eccentric songs about bikes, gnomes, and scarecrows. His career was painfully short, yet he touched some people more than he could ever know. So, wow. Yeah, and, and right after his death, there was, there was a, a reinvigoration of, of his uh, re-interest, I should say, in his music. Uh, on May 10th, 2007, uh, a little less than a year later, after his death in London, there was a huge tribute concert featuring Robin Hitchcock, Captain Sensible, uh, Damon Abon, and Chrissy Hind, uh, Kevin Ayers, and the rest of Pink Floyd actually played, okay? Uh, in late 2008, there was also a series of events throughout London and Cambridge that was sponsored by Sid's sister, Rosemary, featuring his artwork and music. So some of his paintings were shown, okay? Um, a guy like Robin Hitchcock, I don't know if you're familiar with his music, uh, he was in uh, a punk rock band called The Soft Boys, but when they broke up, he went into a more of a singer-songwriter direction, and really is, I mean, you listen to his music, he was in a band, uh, he's had different bands. Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians was one band that was popular in the 80s, a little bit in the United States on the kind of underground circuit. Uh, his music is directly drawn from those two Barrett solo albums. If there's anybody that kind of picked up the mantle, you know, years later after, after Sid had stopped giving up music, it was Robin Hitchcock. I always say that. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's tracks like um, Balloon Man. I mean, I had made that actually the song of the day today, if you want to listen to it. Um, he had a song called Queen of the Wasps. I mean, these songs sound like something that Sid would have wrote. All right, so he was definitely influenced by it. Now, <clears throat> one story I got to talk about that's kind of infamous in Pink Floyd lore is the Wish You Were Here sessions in 1975 when they were recording that album. Now, Sid Barrett hadn't been in touch with them in a few years, really hadn't seen them in a long time. And he visited the studio that they were in in 75 when they were recording that album, Wish You Were Were Here. And Barrett was 29 at the time. He had shaved his head and he shaved his eyebrows off and he was very overweight. Okay. And, and when he came in and was standing around for a while watching, okay. While they, they recorded the final mix um, of the track shine on you crazy diamond, which is actually a tribute to Sid. Okay. In fact, most of that album is okay. Barrett was, was seen kind of standing there. He was heavy, Shaved head, shaved eyebrows, looking strange. And he was seen brushing his teeth during the, the time he was standing there watching him. They were like, who is this guy? 
And at one point, while they were mixing the, the song, Barrett turned around and left. And uh, Roger Waters, at that point, realized it was him. And Sid had gotten out of the studio and was walking down the street and had turned the corner, and, and Roger Waters ran after him and brought him back into the studio and invited him in and said, you know, we didn't even recognize you. We're sorry, you know. And he ended up asking him, you know, what do you, what do you think of this song? And Sid said to him, hey, it sounds a bit old. <laughs> so. That's pretty funny. That's yeah. Funny. Now, he also, you know, again, he, he didn't have much to do with them anymore. And he got invited, though, to David Gilmore's wedding in the late 70s. And uh, he showed up to the recep- reception very briefly. Uh, didn't say anything to, to Gilmore, really, and his wife and left. And uh, Roger Waters in 1978 ran into him at Harrods in London, which is like, it's like their Macy's, you know, big store like that. And supposedly when Barrett saw Waters approaching him, he, he ran away. He, was, he had a bag of sweets in his hand and he dropped everything and ran away. And that was the last time that, that Waters ever saw him or anybody at Pink Floyd wow. ever saw him or spoke to him again. Um, but like I was saying the, the, uh, at the beginning of the show, the, the specter of, of Sid Barrett, especially in the early years of Pink Floyd, after he had left, really w- was there. And if you look at Roger Waters, eventually by the time like The Wall came out, which I think was about 1980 or so, um, there's elements of of Sid in that, okay? Like, for oh. instance, in the, in, in the movie, The Wall, Bob Geldof shaves all his body hair off and his eyebrows and most of his hair, okay? You see him doing it when he's, you know, The Wall is about a guy losing his mind. Uh, it's a concept album. I'm sure you're familiar yeah. with it. And uh, when they made a movie out of it, Bob Geldof playing the, the role of Pink, okay, the rock star that loses his mind based on all these things that built up in his life, including the, the fact that his father had died violently in Anzio, in the Battle of Anzio in World War II. Uh, and he builds up an emotional wall around himself with drugs and different women. And by the time, after a few years of being a rock star, he, he loses his mind. And... Um, that's really, you know, I, I think that they were drawing on what had happened to Sid when they made that, that album. And oh, uh-huh. You agree? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So that's all I got for you today. That's the story of Sid Barrett. Rob. That's pretty good, Mike. A lot of information, a lot of stories, a lot of... Uh, well, from a guy that was... He just disappeared like that. You know, he must have been must have been something going on yeah and and being reclusive and and not on the scene anymore you know he became a mystery almost like a like a like a legendary character like is he alive still and nobody even knew where is he you know you couldn't i mean there was no cell phones in those days no internet yeah you could try you could drop off the map you know so that's right he said i don't want to deal with this stuff i don't want to remember my whole life about right right so wow Yep, yep. Well, how can we get in touch with you? Okay, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Instagram under RockerMike212. Okay, uh, RockerMike212. You can find me on CloutHub and MeWe under RockerMike. And, of course, you can find me on Facebook on the Rock Show podcast group page, which has been doing very well the last few weeks. Uh, We've been getting more members every day to join up. Thank you for that. And of course, on Facebook under Rocco Mike, not Rocker Mike, Rocco Mike on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Long story, but something behind that one. Yeah. And um, in order to get in hold with me, you can find me anywhere getting lumped up. If you go to Google, look at lumped up, search everything, anything lumped up, I have a smile with a picture. <laughs> 
you're looking for me on Twitter, uh, uh, Spotify, you'll get right away. <laughs> right. Okay, so, Rob. This is the end of another great show, Mike. Thank you for all your hard work. And, uh, Very welcome. And uh, people, we'll see you next week. Remember, don't get drunk. Get lumped up. Take care, people. Have a good one. Get lumped up on the rock show.